traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, will Dropbox's IPO filing be a success? Private investors are more bullish than public ones. So other tech firms will be watching to see whether this strategy pays off. And charging the electric car revolution. Companies like Volkswagen, for example, that have come slightly late to the idea of electric vehicles, they're pretty desperate now to get hold of quantities of cobalt sufficient to be able to make the transition. First, one of the most powerful institutions in China has a new boss. The People's Bank of China, China's central bank, announced that Yi Gan will become its next governor. The appointment of Mr Yi, who studied in America, is a subtle sign of change in the way people with economic power in China are chosen. With more on this, our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, joins us on the line from Beijing. Tell us a bit about this appointment then, Simon. Well, the appointment was, to a certain extent, unexpected. There was a short list of candidates of uh, possible replacements for Zhou Xiaochuan, uh, who'd been the governor of the People's Bank of China for the past 15 years. Uh, Yi Gang was on that short list, but he was probably seen as the least favoured of, of the candidates. He is extremely skilled, with a lot of experience working for the PBOC. Um, so in most countries, he might have been seen as the favourite. But what he supposedly had going against him uh, is that he has extensive academic experience abroad. He did his PhD at the University of Illinois. He then spent several years in the 1990s as a professor at the University of Indiana. He speaks fluent English. He's uh, been a relatively common figure on the international uh, economic circuit uh, over the last 20 years. uh, One thing you really have to have the the financial discipline uh, to make uh, every uh, enterprise every unit of the economy to be responsible for themselves, right? If uh, they bankrupt, they, they bankrupt. And uh, that, that is, uh, the, the financial uh, discipline uh, is uh, very important. The, the problem and right. in China, there's a concern sometimes that somebody who has this kind of uh, foreign experience might be a little bit tainted. And so people had sort of discounted the possibility of him being the next PBOC governor. So there was a little bit of surprise that he was appointed as as the governor. And it was taken as a very positive sign by a lot of economists, by a lot of people in the market, uh, because he is somebody who does have such a strong record. And he also is the first academically trained economist uh, to lead the PBOC. So this, this is an important appointment. What do you think is the takeaway from this appointment? Do you, do you think this is a sign of things to come, a big change in direction when appointing people to these sorts of jobs? Well, it's uh, interesting institutionally. The PBOC traditionally is is not an independent central bank. It doesn't have the same power as the Fed or the Bank of England or the ECB. But over the last decade, we've seen that as the economy and the financial system have gotten more complex, there really is a lot of value placed on having 
you know, very competent technocrats managing the financial system. Uh, and Egon continues the pattern of that. So despite the fact that institutionally it's not independent, this is a sign that there's a recognition at the very top of the Chinese system from Xi Jinping that you really do need to have, you know, true professionals running something as complicated as the central bank for a $13 trillion economy. Um, so I think that's quite positive for the general financial direction of China. Uh, but I wouldn't overstate the importance because the PBOC still does answer to the state council, which very much answers to the, to the Communist Party, to the Politburo, uh, and to Xi Jinping. So while uh, Igang will have a lot of leeway in terms of day-to-day -day management of the central bank, in terms of the big decisions like liberalization of interest rates, making the exchange rate more flexible, relaxing capital controls, he will not be able to make those kinds of decisions himself. Uh, that will be a committee decision, uh, and he will be basically no more than an advisor, a very informed specialist expert advisor, uh, but ultimately that, that's the role that he will be playing. There were a couple of other interesting appointments, I think, this week that uh, also signal future direction of China's economic policy. That's right. I'd, I'd point to two appointments. Number one, you know, as I've said, the PBOC is not independent. Uh, the person who really actually is going to be, in terms of strategic direction, overseeing the financial system and the economy is uh, Liu He. Uh, Liu He is, uh, you know, a, a longtime economist uh, for uh, within the Chinese government. He's somebody who, for years, was helping to draft the five-year economic plans. Uh, over the last five years, he emerged as uh, Xi Jinping's most trusted economic advisor. He was the director of what's known as a leading small group uh, on financial and economic affairs, which meant that he was part of the party organization that was really kind of directing broad economic strategy. He now has been made vice premier, directly responsible for economic and financial affairs. So while Egong will have day-to-day -day management, the big decisions that I mentioned before on interest rates, on the exchange rate, on capital controls, Liu He will be the most important voice at the table for those. A second important appointment to look at um, was uh, Wang Qishan uh, being named as a vice president. Now, Wang Qishan, he's nearly 70 years old. He had seemed to retire uh, last year. Uh, he previously had been uh, on the standing committee of the Politburo. Uh, he was seen by many as the second most powerful person in China. He was the person who was leading Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, and he has formally been brought out of retirement and been made vice president. The belief now is that Wang Qishan is going to be tasked with managing U.S.-Chinese relations especially economic relations. You know, in the early 2000s, through the financial crisis, he was the point person for liaising with uh, the American Treasury Department. Uh, and so he built up quite a network of uh, economic contacts and contacts with policymakers uh, in America during that time. Uh, and China is going to be relying on him to try to deal with the threats that are emanating from the Donald Trump White House. And he's seen as somebody who, uh, you know, traditionally through the 1990s into the early 2000s, was consistently able to solve all kinds of problems. Uh, his nickname in China is the firefighter. And so the hope now is that he will be the person to douse the flames of uh, the US-China economic trade war. So uh, that's the other big appointment to watch. So taking these three appointments together, what would you say it means for the direction of China's economy and its political leadership? There's a lot of concern, of course, about the concentration of power uh, under Xi Jinping. And so politically, we're all very concerned about the direction that China is heading in. 
I think we can breathe a sigh of relief for now, at least, that in terms of the financial and economic direction, there still is a lot of value being placed on expertise uh, on people who, within the Chinese context, are relatively liberal. They want to see more in the way of market reforms, more in the way of efficiency. Um, so in the short term, at least, it seems that the world's second biggest economy uh, is in good hands. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. Next, investors will be watching to see whether the online file storage company Dropbox successfully goes public on Friday. If it does, they'll want to see what Wall Street's response says about the prospects for the other so-called unicorns, the startups valued at more than $1 billion by the private investors that have so far financed their growth. Rachina Shanbog is our business correspondent in New York. Hello, Rachina. Hi, Helen. There have been reports that investor appetite is strong for Dropbox shares. Why is this IPO interesting? The Dropbox IPO is the largest IPO since Snap went public last year. And Snap's IPO was regarded to be a little bit of a failure because the share price is still about a third lower than it was when it went public. So what Dropbox is doing instead is something called a down round. Back in 2014, when it last raised money, it was valued at $10 billion. So it was actually a decacorn. Its implied valuation at IPO will be about $7.5 billion. So quite a bit lower. That's an acknowledgement that perhaps private investors are more bullish than public ones. So other tech firms will be watching to see whether this strategy pays off. It's the norm for tech companies going public these days, like Dropbox, to have multiple classes of shares with different voting rights. What's your view on this? Well, Helen, it's a little bit of a trade-off. Ideally, you want all owners to have an equal share in the company. But it's understandable that the founders of the big tech firms want to retain control. And investors may want them to as well. I mean, this is the question, isn't it? Because they're the people who had this fantastic idea and have got these companies that are already, you know, billion dollars and more worth on the private market. Absolutely. The tech firms are the founders' vision. So what do you think the prospects are for Dropbox then? Where the price is going to go and how it's going to grow its business? The IPO is rumoured to be oversubscribed, which is a good thing for, for Dropbox. But in the longer term, where the share price ends up, will depend on what investors make of its long-term growth prospects. Now, the company's still loss-making. It's got 500 million users, but only 11 million paying users. And it says that it plans to pivot from customers that use its services for free to more fee-paying customers. And it will also need to pivot from consumers to corporate subscriptions. Now, that's going to be hard, given there's plenty of competition from the big tech firms. Rachina, thank you. Thanks, Helen. What are your views on the latest spate of tech IPOs? Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at Finally, last week, Glencore, the world's biggest producer of cobalt, signed a deal to sell about a third of its entire production over the next three years to GEM, a Chinese manufacturer of batteries. Cobalt is used in making the sort of batteries that are increasingly in demand for electric cars, and the price in recent years has soared. Henry Trix, our energy editor, is in the studio. Henry, what are we to make of this deal? So for quite a long time now, China has been uh, taking control of bits of the cobalt market, and this this deal gives it a, a huge chunk. Glencore is ramping up production over the next couple of years in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is where about half of the world's cobalt is mined. And it's giving a large chunk of that production to GEM. Just to put it in context, 
the amount that it's giving it is about the equivalent of 50% of what the world produced in terms of cobalt last year. So that that is a lot of cobalt. It raises the question about whether China is actually uh, getting to the point where it could start cornering the market in cobalt. So what about people who need cobalt elsewhere? Is there going to be enough cobalt to go around? There is definitely concern amongst companies from car companies to electronics companies to basically any business that requires a lithium-ion battery is going to need a a substantial amount of cobalt for the cathodes in those batteries. And so there is concern that they won't be able to get, get their hands on. It's not just upstream. It's not just in the mines themselves. It's the fact that China has about 80% of the refining capacity for the kind of cobalt salts that go into those, um, those cathodes. What sort of products are these that use lithium-ion batteries? So we're talking about consumer electronics. We're talking about the iPhone and all sorts of models of consumer electronics. But increasingly, we're talking about electric vehicles. So if consumer appliances like our phones, etc., use grams of cobalt, an electric car will use kilograms of of cobalt in in its batteries. So so that's really where the, the biggest source of demand is coming from. And companies like Volkswagen, for example, that have come slightly late to the idea of electric vehicles, they're pretty desperate now to get hold of quantities of cobalt sufficient to be able to make the transition. And are there any alternatives to cobalt? Maybe not now, but on the horizon. The idea is that if cobalt does become scarcer and um, because of the concentration in the DRC, you know, leads to concerns about supplies, then the idea would be to increase the amount of nickel up to as much as eight times the level of cobalt. Um, Certainly some battery companies, South Korean companies, are thinking about doing that and are actively planning on, on making that chemistry work. The trouble is that while an increase in nickel sort of enhances the energy density of the battery, so it makes the battery work more efficiently, it also increases the instability of the battery, or rather, I guess it's fair to say that cobalt makes the battery more stable. Um, So you really, at the moment, can't have one without the other. You can possibly have more nickel and less cobalt, but you can't have no cobalt at all at the moment. So what are the prices of these two minerals doing at the moment? For about the last couple of years, the price of cobalt has been skyrocketing. That was partly a supply issue in the sense that Cobalt is mined in association with copper and nickel, chiefly copper. And a lot of that copper capacity was taken out during the slump in metals prices. So as there wasn't that much copper being mined in the DRC, there was not a lot of cobalt being mined, just at the same time as the electric vehicle kind of demand was beginning to pick up. And so that has caused sort of something of a squeeze on prices and and push the prices up. I think they've more than doubled in the last year or so. So it sounds like if we want electric vehicles to do everything that they need to do to help us with climate change and so on, uh, we're going to have to find our way through some difficult supply problems for both these minerals. Yes. There's no doubt that there are enough minerals around. If needs be, we can go into the ocean and get these minerals out of the ocean. We can do a lot more in terms of recycling. And they are scattered in the Earth's crust. They can be mined, but the pricing needs to be high enough to make that worthwhile. Thanks so much, Henry. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. 
In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.